Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Sportingly Average podcast, the podcast that discusses all things statistics in sport. Over the next 40 or so minutes, we'll be discussing various records and statistics that interest us in the sporting world, both topical and historic. Uh, so yeah, we hope you enjoy. Uh, as we have introduction, my name's Phil and I'm one of the three co-hosts for the podcasts. Um, and I've loved, pretty much always loved all sports. Never a time where I turn on Sky Sports and struggle to find something I want to watch, much to my fiance's dismay. And then I'm also a self-confessed big-time nerd who's interested in numbers. So that's sort of what inspired me to create this series. Uh, for example, in my Saturday hockey team, uh, I track all the stats for the year and create the year-end stats document. Um, not that anybody actually asks for it. Um, so yeah, you could say I enjoy the stats uh, behind sports as well as the actual sport itself. Um, now, the way this podcast is going to work is each episode, uh, weekly or fortnightly, we haven't actually decided, uh, we'll have a theme. This week's theme, unsurprisingly, is debuts. And each of us will bring a few stats and records related to debuts for us to discuss. Uh, we'll also have... Uh, start each episode off with our favourite stats of the week, where each host gives their favourite statistic that they heard about that week from sport going on in the world today, or just a really interesting stat they, they heard that week. Uh, and hopefully in a few episodes' time, who knows, we might have some listeners, uh, and they might get in touch <laughs> uh, either on Twitter, uh, which is at sportinglyavg, uh, or email us podcast.sportinglyaverage at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to get in touch with your favourite stats or any questions, or on the very rare occasion that we make mistakes and our stats aren't actually accurate, you can come and correct us. Uh, it's almost so definitely going to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's one deliberate mistake every podcast, so double points if anyone spots that. Um, so without any more boring preamble from me, time to hear from our other two co-hosts and why they love the nerdy side of sports just as much as I do. So first off, Juppers. Jupp, hello, how are you? Introduce yourself. Hello, I'm, I'm good. I really enjoyed your introduction. Um, I'm looking forward to you realising there's way more than one error in the, in the stats that <laughs> we're going to talk about. Um, uh, yep, yeah, so uh, Juppers, um, I don't really know where my love of stats came from. I think it was probably drawn from watching test cricket and having nothing else to do but read what was being read or listen to the commentary and the stats that were appearing on, on screen. And from there, it kind of it grew and grew and grew. Um, and the same could be said for Formula 1 these days. We are sitting there watching zero overtakes for 35 laps. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, you're, you might as well stop spinning and, and quit Formula 1. So, so I think that's where my, uh, my love of stats comes from. Nice. And uh, Reese, welcome. Hello. Hello. Same, uh, same question to you. Same question to me. Um, so I mean, I have a similarly, I think, unsatisfying answer is Jeffy. I don't really, I don't really know where it sort of came from. Um, so similar to Phil, interested in a wide variety of sports. Played a whole lot, you know, some better than others. So uh, having tried my hand at basketball in recent years, I'm exceedingly average. <laughs> but it's one of the ones I enjoy more. So so I'll do what I want. Um, uh, so I think it's kind of almost the logical next step in kind of understanding what you've just seen unfold or like what you're watching. I'm a bit of a, not not necessarily contrarian, but I kind of like to overthink things and go, oh, but why did he do that? But why did they say that? But you know, what's, what's, what was the thought process there? So I think it's quite yeah useful from that perspective. I've been really quite heavily into American football since about 2005, six, where obviously stats are a pretty like big part of the, the experience um so that probably contributed to it in some way shape or form right um i think it's quite cool that yeah they can i don't think they're the, the be all and end all right they can use to can to sort of to build upon what you've seen with your own eyes it's not like a this I don't, there's this kind of uh a struggle between like watching the game and analytics in recent years but yeah it's things like the scoreline doesn't lie like we know it does right whether it's expected goal <laughs> it does it does statistics. exactly like expected goals, totals, maybe a team had like a disproportionate number of conversions on third downs, that sort of thing. And equally, I think once you know like a sportsman is special, I think it's interesting to go ahead and think like why why are they special? Whether it's someone like 
um, Lewandowski like consistently outscoring his expected goals. You're like, okay, he must be a good finisher. Maybe someone like Justin Herbert, who's like disproportionately converting third and longs above league average, that sort of thing. Just you know, just another another level of nerdiness, shall I say? Which seems so, sounds be- like the the excuses of a man who's consistently reasoning why they deserve to win a game of FIFA that they had seventy percent possession on. <laughs> It's not. It's not about being good at football, though, FIFA. It's about being good at FIFA. <laughs> anyway, nice. anyway, yeah. On to thanks, guys. On to the uh, start of the podcast proper. Then um, everyone's stats. Yeah, everyone's stats of the week. Um, I'll kick off this week. So uh, mine is tennis related. Uh, somewhat unsurprising. It's Wimbledon here in the UK. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I always feel that. Wimbledon's one it's my favourite Grand Slam and it probably is just because I'm British but I quite like the tennis uh, the grass tennis side of it it's obviously the only slam on grass um, and I feel that everyone just goes a bit Wimbledon mad you know we have it on in the, the TV screen in the office instead of the news we put on Wimbledon in the afternoon um, everyone like and, yeah people like people who I know who I don't know would, would never play tennis would would happily go along and 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 watch Wimbledon you know be it primary sort of football fans rugby fans they'll go kind of at 6pm after work and try and get a ground pass ticket and I feel that's slightly more for Wimbledon than you do in in other sports necessarily but yeah I I absolutely love it and I would happily sit there just watching kind of anyone play doubles mixed whoever it's it's one of my definitely favorite sporting events it's quite therapeutic isn't it yeah just rhythmic smashing a ball at each other. Um, but yes, yeah, so my stat of the week uh, occurred in Wimbledon and it was John Isner, the big serving American, passing Ivo Karlovic's ace, all-time aces record. So Karlovic had 13,728 uh, and Isner passed that and I believe is now on 13,748. Um, and he actually passed that record in his losing match. He lost straight sets. Uh, I think it was in the fourth round, having just beaten Andy Murray. Um, went and lost his mm. next game. Yeah, boo. Mm. Um, Andy Murray goes back to being Scottish, having lost. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that for me, that was just such a staggeringly big number for starters. And so just quickly, that number of aces, obviously it doesn't happen like this, but if you were to do them all in a row in every service game never lose a point, etc. You It's the equivalent of 3,437 games or 573 sets that he has won of pure aces. Um, and he is a 21... Is yeah, it's ridiculous. And it is, he is a 21% ace hits rate. So one in five of his serves is an ace. Um, and he's won 92% of his service games. So ninety-two percent. Well, you would, yeah. What fact? What I found so surprising though is that you know in tennis, surface dependent a little bit less less important on clay, which is why he's much less successful on clay. But on on hard courts and grass, you know, holding your serve is such a big deal, and a break of serve in any tennis match is always considered a really big deal. And for him to win ninety-two percent of the service games, and he's he has won on tour. He's won one. ATP 1000 Masters event in singles. He's won a few more in doubles. Um, and he's got a very impressive winning record. He's won about $21 million. So I'm not feeling sorry for the poke. Oh, um, and he peaked at eighth in the world, which again, you know, top 10, obviously very handy player. But I was almost surprised that he is that dominant a skill, 92% of his service games won. And he's kind of never got to a Grand Slam final. He's only won one Masters event. And just, yeah, to me, that was almost kind of mind-blowing that winning 92% of your service games and he wasn't more successful. That was, I think that was what surprised me most about that. Um, is that, like, you know, having that single skill in a sport being so dominant and whether or not, I don't know, not enough of a tennis savant to analyse the rest of his game. But I mm. was surprised that, you know, he hasn't, been more successful and you can just rely on that so much well yeah especially because presumably if even if he doesn't ace you his serve is so fast and presumably if he's serving aces he's 
hitting it in the right places, right? It's quite tricky to get back. So even if you do manage to return it, you're not hitting like a like an instant winner. You're like lofting it mid court for him to smash home. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it was something like uh, so he's won ninety two percent of his service games, but his first serve win percentage was I think point win percentage was about seventy five percent. So again, just ridiculously high numbers for for someone who you could say arguably should have been more successful. You know, no Grand Slam final. Um, he may have had actually one final but he's definitely not won any slams so it's one of these weird sports where there's not what was the game I was watching the other other day probably Tuesday Wednesday it was maybe the Kyrgios one or maybe the Nadal's um, whatever it was um, where they sort of mentioned there's not actually that big a point discrepancy in the set of tennis it might be like 55 to 48 or something it's just you have to win them at the right times so, you know, if, if, if them's the margins, I suppose. Even so, with all those aces and, and lined up, like, like Phil said, for uh, 3,400 games in a row, you'd expect him to have done far better than not or one final, one single ACP uh, like victory, right? you got a question. I mean, what's it like that actual, actually breakdown of play in tennis? Is it just rubbish? Yeah, so what Jupp, what Jupp's saying is if Jupp was serving, it'd be a fairly even game. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, clearly not rubbish. He got to eighth in the world, I suppose, but what what proportion of... Yeah, I mean, if you're just acing your way through matches, though, you can probably get yourself through the first and second rounds, and then when you get to someone that is probably also top ten at that point, which would be a third or fourth round, then they're going to be able to return it. Yeah, oh, I suppose... And they won't lose their own service games, right? That's what I would say. Yeah, it's fine. The margin's a bit further up. I suppose the structure of tennis tournaments is such that your first two, three opponents will be significantly easier than the ones you face later on. So I don't know how the, the ranking system works, but maybe you just you can load up on ranking points from getting through to the last 32, 16 of tournaments. And then when it comes to business time, all it takes is losing, what, three three service games, three sets. You're, you're losing 6 4, 6 4, 6 You're out of a slam, yeah. Yeah. And not well. Um... Obviously, when big servers come up against each other, it's quite amusing. So he is uh, Kevin Anderson, who I believe is South African. Um, they had quite a few good games against each other. And they, <laughs> the last time they played, um, he's I, the reason I picked Kevin Anderson is that he's the player that isn't has played most on tour. Uh, he's played like 15 times or something. Um, and the last time they played, it was 7-6. Isn't won the first tie break. 6-7. Anderson won the seventh, second tie break. 7-6 isn't the one the deciding tiebreak so no one in theory actually got broken it all came down to the tiebreak which I guess could be another point is even if you get to 6-all with Isna all he needs is to lose even one service point in a tiebreak and that's sort of the mini break that then means he loses the uh, the set so he can lose sets without even being broken I guess um, mm. yeah just as a other final number to take away from it before we get to uh, Reese's stat of the week he uh, how many without cheating obviously and looking at the uh, the sheet how many aces do you think he hit against Nicholas Mahu in his marathon like three oh, day God, longest that. tennis match ever um, that was 70-68 in games in the final set how many aces do you think he hit I've already read it sorry how many aces? Well, okay, right. I reckon it'll be... So you reckon... What do you think? You've got like a 30, 20, 20%? I can't remember what it was. So basically, I'm going to assume one or two a game. And he's going to play, what? Six, 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 24. So he's at 48. And then the fifth set, probably another six. I don't know if it's massive. I mean, it definitely isn't. Ooh, what, what was the final? 70-68 was the final set in games. Good Lord. Um, I mean, that's got to be another 60, let's say about 68 times 235, probably about 170. It was 113, so it was almost exactly one per service game, which is kind of that, when you put it into that context, one per service game, it doesn't sound quite as outrageous, but 113 aces in a single match is... 
utterly ludicrous. I mean, if that single match went on for three days, yeah, stupid. Did you know what yeah. monkey he was in the world at that, at that point? Uh, I don't actually. When he played Mahu, I don't know when he was where he was ranked. Interesting. I'm just looking at um, looking at John Isner's John Isner's career statistics for the all the Grand Slams, and you'd like to guess how many quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals he's made. Slams or everything. Slams only. Uh, and I, I looked. At, I was looking it up. I think he's made. It's either one, only one semi-final, or only one. Fi- I think it's only one semi-final, and I don't I think, think he's made a final. final. You don't think he's made a final? Did he make one? I think, no, I think he made one final. I think he made a Wimbledon final in fourteen. I think you're thinking of the the, the Canadian um, uh, big server. Miles yeah. Yeah, so he has made, uh, yeah, so the one, one semi-final in 2018, which was Wimbledon, and then two quarter-finals, one with the US Open in 2011, and one in 2018. And a lot of third and fourth rounds. Yeah, so it does seem that yeah. as soon as he came up against someone half-decent. Yeah, very interesting stat. I thought yeah, breaking this... that record that would take some some beating. But anyway, on to the next one, Reese. What did you uh, hear this week that interested you? Well, Matthew, thank you for asking. <laughs> um, so, my uh, interesting stat is also upsettingly tennis related, um, but again, as discussed, it is Wimbledon here in the UK and indeed in every other country in the world. That's how time time works. Um, So mine was the the longest losing streak in tennis. I can't remember whether I heard something about this or saw it on Twitter at some point or just looked it up randomly because I'm like that. And the longest losing streak in tennis is 21 matches long. (laughs) 21 matches held by a a chap called Vincent Spadia or Spadia. I'm not really sure. Um, Vincent Spadier, so drop him. Uh, so, what is I think quite interesting about this that in particular is that you normally, when you think of losing streaks, it's normally a team who isn't, or a player who isn't particularly good, safe to say. You'd assume so, right? You'd assume so. Um, obviously, you know, statistically, everyone's losing ones, but this, this, was, this was next level. So, it's sort of him dropped from, um, he's in the world's top 20 in October 1999 when he lost at uh, Lyon to Leighton Hewitt in the semi-final uh, and he then lost 21 straight if you look cool. at the wider streak he actually wins three out of 38 games and uh, with that, that sort of final loss there in, in the 13th of August 2001 um, and he drops to 230 in November 2000 so there's a bit of a lag with his sort of ranking losses he goes through these um this sort of streak, uh, I assume, because that's how the, the tennis ATP ranking system works. It's a bit of a level to figure out you know, who gets what. Um, but I mean, yeah, this, this is what I say. This is what I mean is he was he was literally well top twenty, as discussed with with Isner. You don't get there by accident. You're not necessarily a flash in the pan. You have to do well consistently yeah. to get that high. Um, and then just the precipitous which was just sort of continued and went on and on and on. I mean, you, you, you see like players having bad games, right, where they absolutely de- defecate in the bed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you. Uh, and PG, everyone, PG. Um, and sort of, you know, over, you know, choking in sport, it's not particularly new, right? It, whether it's overthinking or underthinking, not sort of trusting all the practice you've done before. Like, like Juppie when he hits the, uh, the first tee. Oh, I'm a fresh oh, I go with that. Okay, I thought we were going somewhere else with that. No, it's obviously a golf analogy. Um, but yeah, so it's more about that he's he's obviously like pretty good at this sport. Um, I had a look at other significant loss streaks in other sports, and it's kind of as you'd expect, there are sort of logical reasons behind them. So, some quick riches here. So, uh, the longest losing streak in Test cricket. Is circa 2000, so 2001, 2004, 21 matches in a row, Bangladesh lost. Four. And one day international, 23 matches in a row from 99 to 2000. 
and including that little overlap there, actually, uh, they lost 28 matches on the bounce, which is quite uh, quite special. But they were, I had a quick look at the rankings in such terms of 3-4, they were significantly below almost every other nation. So, you know, in, in a, a sport of relatively, a relatively small pool of teams, you'd expect someone to take a bit of a beating. See, yeah, I think that's Italy. one of the ones, yeah, like with cricket, it's not like you can keep going down the leagues and play, you eventually play a test nation that you'll eventually beat. That doesn't really work with cricket because there's only a certain number of test nations. And like, I guess it's somewhat similar in tennis in that you will just start playing worse people. But if you look at um, most sports have a system in place where if you start losing a lot, you're going to start playing worse people either by relegation or whatever other means so that you don't continue just losing consistently. Um, I guess the other one might be the only other one I can think of that really stands out is like you might get a boxer who is clearly just a journeyman oh, and is almost is almost set up to play to fight you know up and coming boxers that are definitely going to make it and they're there just to sort of be the warm up sort of first ten fights for the new heavyweight that might make it and be you know really impressive and lose in about seventy seconds because Anthony Joshua just goes through them. Um, I guess that's that's the one that stood out to me when you said it was like an, a losing streak stat. I thought that you've probably got some journeyman boxer who is to his, his whole career is to just go and lose to boxers that are going to be something in the future. Yeah, that's quite a good that's quite a good uh, suggestion, yeah, actually, which I did not look into. Uh, but what did you look into? I hear you say. I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> just, I mean, that's a, I think there's a couple of interesting slides. So NFL. As you said, like similar, um, the longest losing streak there, I think, was the 76 77 Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who lost 14 one season, 12 the next for 26. How many, how many matches are there in an NFL season for the uneducated? For the uneducated, so currently there's a merger of two separate sort of NFL leagues, um, in a particular year, which I can't remember. Uh, great, someone looked that up for me. Um, but uh, there would have been probably 12 to 14, uh, 14 or uh, so back then. So it's basically almost the entirety of the whole season, plus the vast majority of the next. Uh, but then more recently, in a 16-game season uh, and 17-game last season, the Jacksonville Jaguars lost 15 in a row one season and then another five in a row the next. Sure. And the, the, okay. the, the game that pulled them out of that losing streak was a 23-20 loss, well sorry, win, where they kicked a field goal as time expired so the narrowest possible win <laughs> Nice. Again, like NFL set up that if you're absolutely pony, you then get the top draft picks in theory and you know salary caps come into play and you know, American sports very set up you know, so the worst, because they have no relegation, mm-hmm. I suppose they have to do something like that where the really bad teams get all the good draft picks which then they can either trade for current players or hope for future prospects, right? Well, this is it, because they, they went 1-15 that previous season to win. win. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, one of the most highly rated black prospects in recent years, who they then proceeded to completely waste his first year by questionable personnel decisions, like spending a first-round pick on the running back, and they already had a good one. Uh, they got a college coach in who basically tried to treat it like a college team and act like he owned the place when actually he hadn't done anything with the pros and was probably uh, fired shortly after refusing to go back on the plane with the team and then being spotted at a bar later while some really young girls just danced on him. He wasn't his wife, it's safe to say. Uh, questionable circumstances. Can't imagine why they lost all those games. Who knows? It's an absolute mystery. And he's um, fair, Trevor Lawrence has got a great lid as well. And oh, yeah. That's definitely worth a Google. Oh, long flowing rocks, Chuffy. You'll be, you'll be amazed. Yeah. No, I enjoyed that. That is a very impressive losing streak. That's twenty-one tennis matches. Just, just one last little bit, just to check in with you nice and quickly, just kind of to show that these all losing streaks aren't all made even. So Norwich City hold the longest football, uh, soccer Premier League losing streak of sixteen games out of a thirty-six game season, thirty-eight games. Sorry, uh, in two thousand nineteen and two thousand and twenty-one. What's interesting about this is in two thousand eighteen, they absolutely walk the championship. 27 wins, 13 draws, 6 losses, uh, 94 points. They got to the Premier League, 21 points, 
20th straight down again after losing 27. 2020 season, they win the championship. 29 wins, 10 draws, 7 losses, 97 points. Bounce back up again. Uh, at which point, they then proceed to go on another 16-game losing streak. Um, ends up winning 5, drawing 7, losing 26. That's a depressing points. season. Yeah. yeah. Just the, the fact that you could... I mean, it just shows the point resource discrepancy between the championship and the Premier League at the moment that you can do so well and then every other season yeah be aggressively found out the next year yeah well, having nice. said that wasn't it um, uh, Huddersfield was it this year that came up from the championship and finished 12th was it Huddersfield or, is it someone, or someone else you say that it makes me think you've literally just Googled it no yeah, no it, it happens it happens uh, it happens it. Huddersfield was a few years back Oh no! Who was the other? Um... All right, give me a second. Let me look at it. You know who I'm talking about as well, don't you? Uh, yeah, it's the third team because Watford again have gone down. No. Yeah. Hang on. This is great radio. This. Brentford. Brentford. There you go. Yeah, finished twelfth or thirteenth. Thirteenth. Last year. Yeah. Sorry, Huddersfield. I think they recently yes, they set their manager today. Brentford are well, owned by an American productivity company who've been uh, heavily in favour of using statistics in their recruitment for a number of years now. So um, they're watching money for ball. a job. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. Would you like someone to give you to, to do some basic research on Wikipedia? <laughs> if so, right. get in touch. Yeah, okay. you can, I can use Excel as well. I promise. Yes. <laughs> Start oh, yeah. of the week. That's what we right. So, um, got a couple to choose from here, but actually, I think I'm going to go with um, it's a little bit of a story about Andre de Caceres. I've definitely said his name wrong as well. Um, <laughs> who, uh, so obviously, um, Carlos Sainz at the weekend with the British GP finished his first, well, his first ever win, he's been in Formula One for. Yeah, six years, seven years, eight years, quite some time now. Uh, risen up to the ranks, I've done Ferrari. Um, Ferrari, hot shop of weekend, but we don't want to talk about it if you're a Ferrari fan. But this chap, um, he holds the record for the most races without a win. Who do you want to try and guess what that number is? I know, right, science was just over 150, I think. Um, this guy's got to be... Whoa. Because it sounds like I don't recognise him at all. So it must have been back in the day of like 10 races a season. So it can't be much higher than that. I know, 190. I don't think he hit 200. What do you reckon, Reese? What are you going with? Oh, I don't know. It's so, it's so easy, surely, to go a whole season without winning, especially if it's like the Hacken and Schumacher heyday where no one else is getting a sniff. So I think it's entirely possible to spend your entire career and obviously not win a race. I, uh, Phil said he's going under 200, so I'm going to say 200. Yeah, it was 208. That is... I mean, I just... What, what era was he? So, oh, uh, 19, late 1970s, and I think he finished in the late 1980s, early 90s. Off the top of my head, I can't remember for sure. So is that, is that like Prost, Senna? Uh, before Senna, for the Prost era, and I think Mansell would have been there as well. Um, in that time uh, but there's a little story that comes with this um, oh. so my favourite thing about him is is he is the original Crashdor Maldonado if you don't know who Crashdor Maldonado <laughs> is he was renamed to Crashdor Maldonado and there was a website I remember about 10 years ago that was minutes since Pastor Crashdor had crashed and after <laughs> obviously it was back to zero <laughs> um, so bless him this lad clearly tried very very hard Drove for Romeo, McLaren, Minardi, Brabham, etc., etc., etc. His closest race was the 1982 uh, Monaco Grand Prix, and he's sitting in third. So he's doing okay. Um, Crosses lead the lead, lead the race. So on lap 74, 76, but then crashes because it started raining as a bit of a damp circuit, and he spun and crashed. Person sitting oh, in second. Was that huh? the general excitement of the story, or just something broken? Oh, no, I was saying, I know he crashed out. That's sad. <laughs> um, that's into the second, Ricardo Patrice. Um, 
obviously then takes the lead, but then he spins half a lap later, he crashes. So we're in lap 75, and our boy, Dikasaris, is currently sitting in first. He's gone 200, oh, how many races? Still hasn't won a race. Um, then he gets overtaken by the persons behind him. Uh, but then that chap runs out of fuel. So that boy is the lead. It's incredibly exciting, right? And then Kasaris runs out of, runs out of fuel, to, like two corners after him. But then, oh. then the person in fourth, after you know, Prost, uh, who's on pole, winning the race, comes through, take, takes over. Then he then runs out of fuel before starting the final lap. But whilst that's happened, the person, uh, Patrice, who was second, managed to jumpstart his car by rolling it down a hill. Somehow managed to jump back into it and then managed to do a lap and a half to win the race. Um, so he's finishing third, I believe it was. Um, F1 was, in like the 80s and stuff was just I mean, what a, what a race. I mean, we, we, we would have been so excited watching all of that happen. But I mean, up to that point, you 74 laps of nothing happening at Monaco. And then suddenly it's two laps of absolute mayhem and carnage that you talk about for 40 more, 40 more years. Um, and, the fun, and obviously the fun stat that goes with this is some very basic maths. Um, with this kind of season layout of, I don't know, 10, how many, 20... 22, is 22 it? races, whatever it is. It's what, 11 seasons? 11 seasons of pure losses to, to match that record. Um, I think Carlos Sainz was the closest on 150 or something. I mean, that, I mean, that won't happen these days because they'll get fired, swapped out, dropped by whoever um, before they get a sniff at 11 seasons without a win. Unless they're extremely, unless they're like, you know, second driver like Bottas or um, Perez or whatever, but yeah. I'm yeah. trying to think of like most likely candidate on the grid Stroll. to like even remotely Stroll. challenge that. Stroll. On a Stroll. Yeah, because Stroll. Stroll will never get. He's Stroll's won one, though. Has he? Or was uh, it that the one default, where he like spun out just before? No, I don't think he has. I don't think he has. Uh, because Daddy Stroll will just fund Aston Martin in his place for the next 15 years. Yeah, he's never losing his seat, is he? No. Oh, God, well, the so he's, he's out of contract this year, so we'll see what happens to him. Could you imagine if his dad drops him? He I mean, deserves. Yeah. But, but, um, nice. Does he yeah. own a Aston Martin team? He owns a significant chunk, along with Toto Wolff. Lawrence. Actually. Is it? Do they make money? Not really. Do they have one team? I don't think anyone. I don't think any F one team actually makes money. They just spend the time moaning about the caps and. Mm. How difficult it is. But... Essentially, just big marketing. It's a prestige platform. thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in theory, the... if he's not, yeah, if he's not going to make any money from it, why don't you keep keep little Lance running along? Exactly. Um, right. So onto the theme of the week: debuts. Uh, I'll oh, yeah. go on first, given it's uh, keeping on the theme of F1. My favourite debut start, I think is uh, Lewis Hamilton's debut season in F1 so disclaimer I am a Hamilton fan uh, Abu Dhabi last year killed me um, still haven't watched that ser- entire series of Drive to Survive can't do it but yeah so Hamilton's debut season in F1 yes he was in arguably the best car in McLaren but he finished second in the world championships to Kimi Raikkonen uh, he beat his teammate and the then reigning world champion, Fernando Alonso, they actually finished, I think, level on points by virtue of poles, seconds, thirds, etc. Hamilton actually got second. Uh, and he was on the podium for the opening seven races in a row, of which he won two. And just trying to like think about comparisons to current drivers, you know, none of them are... None of them you would even dream about seven podiums in a row in their first seven races. Even if you put, I don't know, Latifi in the Red Bull, he's not making seven. Ah, that's not in a that's row. not a fair comparison, though, right? You can't you can't look at Latifi. You've got to look at probably George Russell, Lando Norris, Leclerc, and the actual drivers, yeah, but, not the pay drivers. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, but even if you go back to I don't know, let's go George Russell. Even if you, in his first season, you put him in the Mercedes, I don't think he's getting seven podiums seven in a row. Right, and no. I don't think he's coming second by, like, ten points. And he's definitely not beating... In his debut season, he's not beating the reigning world champion who's in the same car over the whole season. So, I think that 
to me, that's just you know such a crazy stat that he literally he went like third, second, 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 first, first in his opening seven races was just utterly ridiculous. Even like even with the caveat of in the best car and things, I think you know F1 is such a jump up, and so many drivers really struggle to you know to make that adjustment and for him just to go immediately consistently like podium 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 is, is just so impressive so yeah. he's he's fun to keep an eye on he could be a talent this kid yeah such a shame he didn't really make much of his career that old hamilton did he <laughs> would they would he have qualified relatively high up the grid because my completely unsubstantiated theory about f1 is that in theory it's really easy if you just uh, get a good start you're out in the top three it's like Mario Kart. You don't get caught in the five to nine absolute carnage. I mean, if you're asking if he got hit by a blue shell during the race, I don't think he did. Well, he has to be leading. No, 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 if you're, if you're, in, you're in second place, you can tap you on the way past and just sleep upside down. <laughs> I've still got PTSD yeah. from Mario Kart from multiple evenings. <laughs> Silly game. Still hooked to it. At the, at the hospital meetings with other war veterans. Where have you been, Afghanistan? What about you? I played yeah. Mario Kart. I was on Rainbow Road. <laughs> it destroyed me. <laughs> I went from first to seven, to twelfth. So pole position was Kimi Raikkonen, not uh, not Hamilton. I don't know where he qualified, but uh, he was not on pole. Obviously, he's quite good at the other overtaking. Safe to say. Yeah, Hamilton was fourth on the starting grid and finished third in his first race. So not, not didn't, too do that much. didn't do that much, then, did he? Yeah, just I mean, just one place game. What's also crazy about Hamilton is in what 2010 was it 2010 or 11? He made the jump to Mercedes, right? Who were still this well, they just got the well, the Braun car from 2009, which is the obviously the World Championship car. But they were a, a brand new team and they hadn't really established themselves. And Red Bull were the dominant side. So after the one world championship he got in 08, there was a, there was, it looked like at one point he wasn't going to win another one because that Mercedes was quick but wasn't a world championship with a winning car. But you go, if you then look at his first season, it's actually kind of crazy to think he was limiting himself in that way. You've got you to like, admire his guts to, to throw it all in and join this essentially a second-tier side to, uh, in, in Formula 1. Um, obviously, obviously it paid off, and we can sit here now. We know that, but at the time, I think even Jeremy Clarkson on Top Gear asked him this question: "Like, why are you joining, joining Mercedes? Like, what, what, what on earth are you doing?" Um, yeah, all the all the big. I think it's yeah. Brundle as well. Everyone questioned it. Like, it's it's you know, an untested outfit. Exactly. What are you doing? What it? Nicky Lauda had a huge role to play in that, didn't he? And yeah, I mean, and to be fair, they had Schumacher driving in what 2010, right? Um, Was Braun there at Mercedes when he went? Sorry. Was, where was, was Braun... Well, Braun basically became yeah. Mercedes, right? Yeah, and they so Mercedes Braun, bought the, Braun, car, bought the team. No, he has, a, he has a weird position within the FIA or the stewards or whatever, like race director and stuff like that. Nowadays, yeah. Yeah, nowadays. No, yeah. Yeah, that's my, uh, my favourite debut, Lewis Hamilton's opening season. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll go next because mine... I've got two more F1 stats because I was just all over it this weekend, as you can imagine. So I think I've solved the, you know, that impossible question that everyone's asking me all the time, you know, um, <laughs> who is the worst F1 driver to have ever driven in the sport? Any quick guesses? You won't get it right. Oh, Latifi. Not Latifi. Heinz Sorry? Heinz Harold Frensen. How are you measuring this? Are you measuring this who's done the least or ah, the most? We'll get to that in a second. Um, I would have taken bonus points to Mazepin, just for a laugh. Um, but <laughs> So it turns out in the 70s and 90s, there were something like 35 to 40 cars that could enter the Grand Prix and then have something called pre-qualifying to qualifying to make sure who got on the track for qualifying. <laughs> so our, our boy, we'll call him our boy because he's, he's one of us, he's useless. Claudio, Claudio Langers, I think we call it, I think his name is, that's how we say it. Um, so he entered 14 races. Obviously, that was pre qualifying, qualifying, and then the race. And he failed to qualify for qualifying 14 times. So he really <laughs> did not pre qualify for qualifying 14 times in his, uh, in his first season of F1. I think it was his last as well. 
which is uh, that is stunning. Class. Yeah, that is a proper like. Thanks for coming. Oh yeah, duck. No, no overs bowled. Duck in your opening over. Oh, yeah. Waste of a Saturday cricket venture. You've been, you've been run out by your teammate. Yeah. Yeah, that's like playing reasonably decent standard football and you just turn up, don't get subbed on for the entire season. You've, uh, you've missed the train and you've got a cab all the way down to Brighton. And, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the coach and you don't get on. subbed on. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, yeah that's that's amazing. Was he attached to a team? Yeah, so the team yeah. was called like Euro, Euro Bryn or something. And, and to be fair, they were, by the sounds of it, completely broke. But they, but even even so, he was still behind his teammates, who I assume qualified, because he wasn't mentioned in this in this stat that I read. So, um, and lastly, I have a, I also have another good debut stat about F one, and then we can stop talking about it because um, it's probably boring, you, Reese. Um, Correct. But would you like to do you have a guess at the quickest ever F one penalty that's ever been awarded? Quickest penalty. Yeah. Uh, oh, it'll be. Like, in terms of, no, how, I, reckon, yeah. I reckon it's second and someone is instantly just dripped, like cut right aggressively can you aggressively like veer off your starting spot like right in well no it'd be no somebody would have um, not stopped in the right place on the starting grid they'll have like overshot their starting position on the grid or something on their like very first race unless um, you can you can get penalties in qualifying it must even be as early as that it was someone like in qualifying of their first okay. race. In, yeah, the, in, the plane, in the plane on the way to the venue, <laughs> they had a go at Didn't the, put your uh, seatbelt on when the light came on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, give me give me your uh, your predictions. How long do you think it was? Qualifying of their first race. There you go. No, no, no it's, it's a it's a time. Oh God. Four, Two minutes. Four, no. Okay, so like time, five seconds. Um. Okay, so Reese is actually correct. It was so different reports, either six or nine seconds. It was Sebastian uh, Sebastian Vettel. Upside down. Sorry. Sorry. Right. Um, yeah, Sebastian Vettel on his debut, or sorry, his first ever practice session. He pulled out of the garage, stalled, and then sped down the pit lane and got a got a penalty for speeding in the pit lane, <laughs> which I think is which is brilliant. Uh, Two thousand six. Yeah, another. Another F1 driver that didn't really amount to much. Yeah. He's got so a very what? annoying celebration to Matthew Vettel, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a good guy. He seems like really him. nice. Yeah, that's the worst part. I want to hate him, but he's... Yeah. But today, he's not really a threat anymore, is he? You know, that's the most... Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Just no, pockets that daddy stroll cash and goes home. Right, anyway. Yeah. Enough about F1. You take it. I can't believe I tried so hard to avoid NFL this week just for just to... <laughs> not get sort of not get shots fired at me for just picking picking up my favourite sport and not going on about it all the time. <laughs> and yeah, this has been an absolute F one fest. Ah, uh, to be fair, was British British GP at the weekend. We had Silverstone, yeah, yeah, we had Silverstone last Coming weekend. Mate. And um, you guys both uh, do Wimbledon stats, so that's since we're in the UK this week. Yeah, so, 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 so Savers, let's do a non tennis, non F one. Well, so I've, Separate I've gone back. To, I've gone back to football again. Yeah, we should. should oh, that's football, wasn't it? Yeah, well, because basically, so I was, I was in a similar vein to uh, our boy Vincent earlier on. I was trying to find, I was trying to find an instance of someone being quite good early on, but for like an extended period of time, not just to, you know anyone can have one good game, right? Um, yeah. Trying to find someone who's pretty good for a period of time at the start of a career or a, or a place or a league, desperate for anything basically, and then went on to go sort of rapidly downhill and not really do much more after that game, season, whatever, uh, sorry, season. But actually, it's really hard to find everyone who's quite good for an extended period of time at the start of their career. Stays reasonably good. Yeah, as you might expect, as they get better and more experienced. And there only seems to be um, this sort of circumstance where they go drastically downhill after after having some kind of substantial uh, bunch of injuries. So, can I, can I uh, is, this, is this the Manchester United failure that had loads of problems his personal life, then went to go and play in Brazil for a bit, and now is making a comeback. I can't remember his name. No. Do you know who I'm talking no. about? Um, not the Bebe, the Portuguese pop chap. It's not Macheda, is it? Federico Macheda? 
Uh, no, so I actually I actually looked at him. Yeah, ah, sort of that's who I was referring to. Yeah, it's having that. Um, that who, ludicrous Rabona goal. Yeah, yeah. So he he had a have I got his details somewhere? Um, no, so he he obviously had a sort of great start, but the Jeffy I was trying to avoid people who only had sort of one good game to start a career because anyone anyone can. So I was looking yeah. at it a bit sort of a bit longer. Um, I have got an NFL fact to get in here. Greg Cook. It was the Bengals' number five pick in 1969. Uh, so that year, as a rookie, which is traditionally pretty, a pretty challenging time uh, because you haven't seen a lot of these coverages. You, you played against people in college before, but not a full team of, of pros, right? It's like playing against a football team where two of the 11 are Premier League players and the rest of them are going to be accountants. Um, so he leads the NFL, 1969 season, he leads the NFL in completion percentage, uh, yards per attempt, yards per completion, and parts are rating. So he's completing lots of passes. He's trying to go deep down the field. They're not sort of dink and dunk little short ones. Um, and his, yeah, his completions are, are going sort of a decent distance. And the yards per attempt and yards per completion are still rookie records. But as it oh, turns wow. out, he's got a rotator cuff injury, uh, which wasn't diagnosed. He's, he's got a biceps injury as well. He misses the next three seasons. He comes back briefly, then he retires at 27. Um, oh, wow. But again, so it, it injury based. Um, but the, what, the one I sort of focused on was from everyone's favourite football time, the late two thousands, Rocky Santa Cruz, who you may remember as being the Paraguayan uh, striker fought by Blackburn. So he he spends a number of years at Bayern Munich. He's behind sort of the big three strikers of Giovanni Albert, Claudio Pizarro, Roy McKay, um, and he ends that six seven season with four goals in thirty eight games. Comes to Blackburn, has a Heck of a debut season, might I say. Uh, 36 starts, 19 goals, 5 assists. Um, Not too shabby. Absolutely tears it up. But then this is where you know, injuries do kick in, to be fair here. Um, next season, he plays 20 games, 4 goals, 2 assists. So he's basically half as effective if you're looking at sort of the, his per 90 sort of normalised contributions. Um, and then from there... He goes to Man City in 2009 for £17.5 million. Uh, Mark Hughes, Manchester of Blackburn, takes him. 19 games, three goals, no assists. 2010, one substitute appearance, no goals. 2011, nine games, no goals. Goes to Spain, uh, Betis, Malaga, has a little uh, loan in Mexico. Doesn't really pick up again until he, uh, he goes back home to Paraguay uh, and bangs them in from 2018, 19 and 2020 up. Uh, 56 goals in three seasons. So I am tearing it up in the Paraguayan league. Uh, you know, a lesson that all of us can learn from. If you if you feel like you're in a rut, go to Paraguay. <laughs> Not sure lost like that there. But yeah, there you go. Run, random uh, sort of throwback to to the, the footballing days. Are there any uh, golf courses in Paraguay? It might uh, <laughs> help my form. Oh God! I imagine it'd be very hilly. I imagine it'd be very hot. It's a very... Very negative, very negative stats from you this week, Chris. You, know, you went for losing streak and falls from grace. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate. It. I like well, that, that. that's because, well, because the, 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 I kind of like that, that kind of consistency of theme. And the opposite would have been where someone's bad at the start of their career for a bit and it really improves, which is not particularly unusual. Very true. Steve, Mo Salah, so diamond dozen them. Exactly, Co- covered, co- littered with them. <laughs> nice. Well, I just set the tone. Up. Your offbeat up to optimism with your uh, with your fiance. You had to mention very early. Just, get it in. Yeah, that was a just so everyone knows. Just so everyone knows. Ooh, got a fiance. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> More trouble than it's worth. Trust me. That's on record. That's definitely going to be edited out, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see if that makes the final edit. <laughs> oh, gosh. Right. Any. Uh, any round off uh, final stats that people want to chat about or calling it for, for episode one? Well, I've got a very quick one I can talk about. Cheap. Um, shortest ever football debut. Anyone know this? Uh, I oh, like you to put two people I, know this. I, don't well, I, I have this as a backup, a backup stat, and it's is it the Southampton player? No. Oh, it's a Man United okay. player. Nick Culkin. Nick Culkin. Nick Culkin. Yeah, played for United in the. Was bought by Man United 
uh, from York City, I think it is, for 100k. Um, made his debut four years later, 1999. Came on in stoppage time against Arsenal. Um, he was on the pitch. So basically, uh, Arsenal, Martin Keown, free kick comes in, big header, saved on the line, but you know, there's one, the keeper's got one hand on the line, and so Martin Keown just basically just nailed the keeper, kicks him in the face, and it was uh, Raymond van der Gaal who's then gone off. So this chap, oh, yeah. this chap's then wandered on, he's on the pitch for about 30 seconds, takes the free kick half the initial foul because the goal was disallowed and whatnot, and the, the referee blew the whistle immediately. His debut was less than two seconds, and he was on the pitch for about thirty seconds. And he kicked, nice. kicked the ball once. Yeah, yeah. and then played, he was, uh, played a game for Man United. I mean, he's got the shirt. Probably makes a fortune from punditry. Happy days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One more game than most people have played in the uh, Premier League. That is true. Best jobs in sport, right? Backup goalkeeper, or well, third, third goalkeeper, backup backup goalkeeper. Second keeper is a bit too close to the action. You end up playing yeah, some European might, games and things. <laughs> exactly. Backup, backup goalie, you, you turn up to training every day for what, two to three hours. You collect your 15 to 20k a week. You go play golf in the afternoon. Job done. Easy. There'll be, uh, there'll be so many golf facts next week. So many <laughs> golf facts. Nice. Yeah, so on that note, the uh, next episode's theme is going to be, uh, I haven't thought of the title yet, but second places. Basically, anyone who's famed for, you know, Loose. Getting close, but never quite winning. Uh, second place facts. Um, interesting. So that'll be well next week or the week after. We haven't decided if we're doing it weekly or fortnightly yet. But, but yeah, if anyone if anyone ends up listening and wants to get in touch, uh, Twitter is at sportinglyavg, uh, and the email is podcast.sportinglyaverage at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to send in any. Facts on debuts that you like and we didn't mention, or pre uh, preamble for the for the next episode. Any second place facts and statistics you enjoy. Uh, if nothing else, thanks for listening. Cheers, yeah. Joe. Cheers, Reese. Thanks very much. Thanks, Phil. I've enjoyed this F1 podcast. <laughs> <laughs> other other sports are available. <laughs> so much entertainment.